Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We continue in our study of Matthew's second discourse now in which Jesus, he um, instructs here his disciples before he sends them out on the mission, the mission to go and the mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Already Jesus in our text here in chapter 10 had called his disciples and uh, commissioned them, sent them out as apostles. He already equipped them with power. He had given them the instructions where they should go and what they should do. And then in verse 16, Jesus, he prepared them for the reality of persecution. As you go and as you preach, men addressing the 12, he says, you got to expect something. It is not going to be pretty. They will not receive you, he says. They will reject you. In fact, in some cases, they will even put you to death. And so as we just place ourselves, and, and this is the challenge for us, right? As we read, especially these descriptive passages, these narratives, as Jesus addresses his disciples, the, the challenge is for us to almost like place ourselves right here, right in the middle of chapter 10, and, and pray that we would almost feel what they're, feel, what they're feeling, and almost understand what, what they're understanding. And, and you can almost see it right? What could possibly be going on right now in their hearts, in their minds, in their bodies as they hear Jesus tell them what he just told them in Matthew 16 through 23? They they might be paralyzed here with fear and rightly so. As he says, you will be rejected and, and government will go after you and religious leaders will go after you. Yes, even your own family members might go after you. You can see how it could paralyze them with fear, fear of being rejected, fear of being hurt, fear of being killed. And so Jesus anticipating this in verse 24 through 33, he addresses this very issue of fear, fear. Three times in our passage, in verse 26, look down with me, do not fear them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. And in verse 31 again, so do not fear. Three times he tells them, do not fear them, your persecutors. And and, and the way Jesus here, friends, addresses fear is pretty amazing. He doesn't tell them, stop fearing. You know, oftentimes you, I don't know if you've ever pulled up behind a car with a bumper sticker, no fear. Or sometimes you get a shirt like this, says no fear. You know, they put it on your cap, like I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm just out there doing my own thing. Absolutely no fear. Jesus does confront their fear, but differently. Doesn't say stop fearing, friends. He says, he understands that all humans fear. And there's a sense in which, friends, fear is is a healthy reality of life. We all fear something. The question is, what do we fear? Or or who do we fear? And Jesus' answer, as we will soon see, he says this, you fear what you value most. You fear most what you value most. 
In other words, if you value your family, you fear losing them, so you do everything possible to protect, to care for, and to provide for your family. Isn't that what you do? If you value your life, you fear death, and you will do everything possible to delay death. You want to live. You value life. And in fact, we've all been kind of exposed during the last two years of this pandemic, right? And we've seen as if in theater, right, having front row seats, observing humanity, valuing life, holding on to everything, fearing death, trying to avoid it at all costs. Value shows your fears. And this is what Jesus here wants to address. He wants to address our value system in these verses. So this morning, as we study these verses, we need to have our hearts, friends, submitting to this word so that we would see and so that we would feel him, Christ, speaking directly to us on these matters. And that we would be compelled. Here's the prayer. As you sit here and as you prepare to get into this passage, here's what you should be praying. Lord, compel me. Help me to value you, Christ, above my safety, above my security, above my comfort, above my reputation. To see you more important than any of these things. Lord, convince me of this. Unless the Lord changes our values our fears would not change. Because it's natural, right? It's natural for us to preserve all of these things, safety, uh, security, right? Reputation before men. All of that at all costs. But Jesus says, turning to them, listen, you live for me. You go for me. You value me and do not compromise the message of the gospel. These verses, friends, they teach us that Christ is more valuable than anything else going on in our lives, which is a challenge for many of us here sitting here this morning because we got a lot going on in our lives. And Jesus says, what I have going on, my mission is more valuable. The person, Christ, is more valuable. So how do we make sense of all of this? I want to invite you to read. Read with me, beginning with verse 24 through 33. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what, I, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, if we're just summarizing everything that is here before us, I want us to think of sort of this proposition here, this big idea, the cure for human or for the fear of men, the cure for the fear of men is valuing Christ in his mission. Has to do with our values, has to do with our priorities. For us to stop fearing men, we have to begin to value what Christ values. Because Christ is more valuable, he will say, than even your own life. So the question is then, how do we, how do we not shrink back in fear of opposition? Because we're, we're dealing with persecution here. How do we not shrink back? And the answer is you need to begin to live for Christ. You need to continue to live for Christ. How? Well, three propositions here for us to consider in this text. Number one, you live for Christ by following his example. Live for Christ by following his example. Number one. And he sets two here in verses 24 through 27. As soon as Jesus repeats the fact that his disciples will be persecuted from town to town, he wants to assure them that suffering for Christ is no indication of God's displeasure. Friends, get this, suffering for Christ doesn't mean that God is not pleased with you. Rather, persecution and suffering are in line actually with God's will. They're in line with God's will. So the call here is to live for Christ by following his example first in verses 24 through 25 of his suffering, example of his suffering. He says here, listen, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and slave, like his master. What is he saying here? Well, in the ancient world, disciples they were followers, they were learners, and they always followed their rabbis. Many of them literally followed their rabbis. That's exactly what happened to those whom Jesus called. What did he say? You follow me. They didn't say, okay, I'll read a book about you. You know, I'll listen to a message about you. No, what did they do? They left everything and followed, literally followed, because that was normal there. I follow my rabbi. And, and that relationship was very similar to the slave and master relationship. He says, right, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave his master. In other words, the teacher and master, they were kind of put in one category. They were in the category of authority. They told you what to do. They taught you how to think, how to live. Same exact with this other category of disciples and slaves. They were in the category of followers. They were subject to that authority. There's this natural order or hierarchy. The question is, who is more important? The disciple or the teacher? Who is more important? The slave or the master? And obviously we understand his point. 
that disciple or that the uh, teacher and the master, they have supremacy over their followers. And Jesus here in bringing this example, he says that I am the teacher. I, I am that master. And you are all disciples and slaves. So he continues on and he says, it is enough for the disciples to become like their teacher and slaves like their masters. What he's saying here is that disciples and slaves, they must be content with their position. You can't expect, here it is, you can't expect to be treated better than your master friend. See what he's getting at? You can't expect to have a more honorable position than the one who is in that position. Teachers and masters. Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ? Then you will be treated in at least the same way that your teacher was treated, that your master was treated. You cannot expect to be regarded more highly than your master. He is saying, friend, you are not superior to your Lord and you will not get better treatment than I'm getting. The question is, now, are we somehow less valuable? No, we are valuable in God's eyes. Absolutely. Jesus will get to that in a second, but Jesus is more important. His reputation is more important than ours. His will is supreme. His glory is the goal. And if they did that to him, he, he cautions them not to think of themselves more highly. And he says, listen, if you follow me, then my followers can expect to be treated in exactly the same way that their master was treated. And then he says, it is enough. Check this out. It is enough. And by saying that, Jesus is not saying just be happy, you know, with what you've been given. No, but he highlights our privileged position. He highlights our privileged position. Friend, think about this. It is enough to be with Christ. We sing the song, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, right? We just sing all to Jesus, I, I surrender. Um, listen, it, are you excited? Do you feel privileged to be in this position to have Christ? to be called by Christ, to be part of his kingdom, to know the father through the son. Is it enough for you? And this is, I think, what, what he wants his disciples to conclude. Listen, you're following me. You're in a privileged position. It is enough for you to know me. Yes, it'll come with consequences and those consequences will be severe. They will be grave, but it is enough. You're in a privileged place. It is more than enough when we consider where we were and where we are right now. And then he continues in verse 25 and he says, well, then if, if they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? The head of the house. If they call the head of the house, the master, kurios, Lord, if they call the Lord of the house. Now, the, this house here, it refers to the reign over God's people, over God's house. And it doesn't get any more direct than this. Jesus, by saying this, he refers to himself as the head of the house. 
as the one who is, has all rule and authority over God's people. He says, if they have called the head of the household, almost like pointing to himself. Colossians chapter two, later on, Paul will write in verse nine and 10, he says, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Who is he referring to? He's referring to himself here. I am the head. I am the most important. And if they call me the most supreme and the most important, Beelzebul. Now we need to pause here for just a second and, and consider what, what this means. Beelzebul. In Second Kings in the Old Testament, the God of Ekron is referred to as Beelzebub, ending with a B. And it seems likely that the Hebrews, they took this name of their God, which means the Lord of flies, the Lord of flies, and they changed the ending from Beelzebub to Beelzebul to make it even more derogatory to mean the Lord of dung. And they applied this term to evil beings, evil spirits, most of whom was Satan himself, primarily to Satan. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, the incident that Jesus here refers to is, is this. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, look with me there. As they were going out, a mute and demon-possessed man came and Jesus cast out this demon and makes him speak, makes him well. And the Jews or Pharisees specifically, so that they don't attract attention to Jesus, they're trying to divert that attention. They're trying to deny his power, deny that he is the Christ. They basically say this in verse 34, but the Pharisees were saying he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons, by the Lord of the demons. That's exactly what this name means. So this is what Jesus is referring this. So the point is, if, if they did this to Jesus, who is far more important than us, what makes you and I think, right, that they won't do this to us? If God would allow them, friends, if the Father would allow these sinners to do this to his Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What makes you think that he wouldn't allow the same kind of insults and persecutions in our lives? You see, we, we often live this life with this self-deluded notion that, that God never intends for anything bad or hard to happen in our lives. We certainly don't think we deserve it, and so we try to avoid any kind of hardship. But that's just not true. If God would allow this for Jesus, he certainly will lead us in the same path. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You cannot skip over trials into glory by following Jesus. Following means walking after Jesus. And if you're really gonna follow him as his disciple, then you're going to experience many trials. Remember this verse, through many trials and 
tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom through many trials. Why? Well, that's because we're following Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happened to him. It took many trials. It took much persecution for him to go through into glory and reign. We will suffer. So we must follow his example of suffering. If we want to live for Christ, then we will suffer. Don't expect better treatment because the master experienced it, so will his disciples. That's what Jesus says in in John chapter three. Listen, darkness hates the light. Jesus says in John, I am the light. And then in Matthew, he preaches from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. If you follow me, you become the light. And guess what? The darkness does, it doesn't matter to the darkness whom it's gonna hate. Whether it's gonna hate the light, Jesus Christ, or small lights who represent Jesus Christ in this world, us, his followers, they're gonna hate the light. Be prepared to follow Christ in his suffering. J.C. Ryle said, surely we have no right to be surprised if we, whose best efforts are mingled with much imperfection, are treated in the same way as Christ. But not only are we called here in this passage to follow Christ, to live for Christ by following his example of suffering, we ought to live for Christ by following his example of proclamation proclamation. He says in verse 26, right away, therefore, building on what he just says, therefore, since this is true, since you're going to suffer, the tendency will then be to be quiet. I want to lessen my suffering. And the tendency is in order to do that, I need to stop talking so that I don't get this opposition. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Therefore, He almost says this, if you talk, they're going to persecute you. And the, almost the response is, you're like, well, therefore be wise, right? Jesus says, be be wise or or, uh, make sure you only speak when it's appropriate. No, he says, therefore do not fear them. Don't be intimidated by them. Yes, they will persecute you for my name, but that's normal. You're only following in my footsteps. I, I really appreciate as I was studying this text Appreciate these words because they reveal that Jesus knew his disciples. And friends, he knows us here this morning too. He knows that this is what we naturally do. So we become afraid. We become timid. We're tempted to run. We're we're tempted to hide instead of advancing for his cause. Fear is a natural response. But as we'll see, Jesus, he doesn't tell them, stop fearing. Rather, Jesus tells them, stop fearing them. Notice the emphasis is on the action, but directed towards a certain group of people, them. Stop fearing. Rather, boldly proclaim. Stop fearing, but boldly proclaim. For, look at this Four in verse 26. Don't fear them for, let me explain, he says. Let me explain why you shouldn't fear them. And verses, when we come to these two verses, verse 26 and 27, in order, I think, to properly understand what he's referring to, we have to think of them in tandem. In other words, verse 27 helps us to interpret verse 26. Okay? 
on its own, verse 26, it could mean that all the hidden sins of your persecutors will be uncovered on the last day. All truth will be known. So don't be afraid. Listen, even if you die, your cause will be vindicated in the end. It could mean that. But it seems more natural in light of verse 27 that Jesus here is referring to the message of the kingdom that we are to be proclaiming, that he is gradually exposing them to. In other words, at this point in Jesus's ministry, he is training his disciples and he's oftentimes instructing them in private, brings them along and then he tells them private information. In fact, you probably noticed this after certain healings, he oftentimes tells the man who was healed, be quiet, don't, don't, don't tell anybody what, what just happened. Right, and you're like, why, why is he saying that? He says, the day will come when what I told you in the dark, verse 27, what I whispered in your ear, so it's almost a pictorial, right? What I told you in private, the day will come when you need to be proclaiming this from the housetops. They had flat roofs back in the day. So if you really wanted someone's attention, that's where you would go. Because the whole neighborhood would hear you. Try this at home sometime. Don't, don't try. We don't have flat roofs. Be careful. Um, they would, Jesus says, make it public. So he's, refer, he, he's basically contrasting this. I gave you private information about the kingdom. Now you got to make it public. And that's exactly what happens after, Right? Acts 2. So like we said, this first portion, 16 through 23, it almost projected right into the future. Things that will take place after crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Same thing here. What I tell you right now during my earthly life, you proclaim the message of the kingdom in public. Don't fear them, but boldly proclaim Christ. Follow Christ's example of public ministry. Listen, Jesus never shied away from speaking the truth. Never. And, and guess what? He got killed for it. He got killed for it. So don't shy away from preaching Christ. The truth of the gospel is not something that we can be quiet about. Proclaim it, Jesus says, at all costs, even if you would suffer for it. Why? Because this is the most important message in the universe, there's nothing else that ultimately matters. Ultimately matters. There was an event in Hugh Latimer's uh, life. He was a preacher in 1500s. He was preaching during the reign of King Henry VIII. And so at one point, he was uh, preaching in the presence of the king. And usually as they constructed their sermons, they would give exposition in an application. And, and he, know, he knew in his applications, he would say something that will definitely offend the king because he knew the kind of lifestyle that the king would, was, was living. And so as he's getting closer and closer to that portion of the sermon, he's just begins to be worried. And, and um, he, he says to himself, Latimer, 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 the king is here. Almost as if to calm him and say, hey, maybe you should skip that line over. 
Don't say it, you're going to offend someone. And then within himself, he says, Latimer, 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 the king of kings is here. The king of kings is here. And then he proceeded to speak the truth at whatever cost. You see, Jesus says here, even though you will suffer, do not shy away. Do not hold back on boldly and publicly proclaiming Christ. How do we not shrink back in fear? We live for Christ by following his example. He is our Lord. He is our master. We are his slaves. And we follow his example of both suffering and proclamation. Friends, are we not privileged to be part of his house? Ask yourself, am I privileged to be in this position? I think absolutely. But this privilege, it comes with great responsibility. And it comes with great cost. But how do we then keep proclaiming, keep proclaiming in opposition? Because it's hard. It's difficult. And Jesus, secondly, says we need to do this by adopting his values, by adopting his values. Not only do we follow his example, but we follow, we persevere in following his example. Number two, we live for Christ by prioritizing his values. And there are two things that he mentions here in verses 28 through 31. We need to prioritize soul over body. And secondly, we need to prioritize God's care for us over our experience. So I want us to see in verse 28, he says this, prioritize soul over body. This is what God values most. So therefore, adopt the same values so that your fears would not be misplaced. You will fear absolutely somebody, but make sure you fear God. Fear God. And the way you will fear God is if you value him and what he values above what you value. And so he says, value soul over body. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Friends, Jesus here, he gives us eternal and divine perspective. He wants us to stop thinking about what's in front of us only, what our eyeballs can see. He wants us to think about what's to come. After all of this is wrapped up and all settled, what, what's after? What happens then? He's calling us to think on things spiritually, not just physically. And beloved, listen to this very closely. There is something worse than being killed for Jesus. That's what he says here. In verse 28, here's what he says. Friend, there is something worse than being killed for Jesus, and that is facing the eternal judgment of God. That's worse. There is something more threatening, more harmful, more destructive than your body being killed by the enemies of the gospel, and that is when your soul is damned to hell. See the perspective? Value this over that. We all know that there's more than one death that occurs or that can occur in a person's life. We all experience first death, 
the death of our physical body. And unfortunately, over the past five, six weeks, it seems like every single week we've been attending a memorial service or a burial service of somebody who's been dying, taken away from their loved ones. And it's a reminder for us that this death is real and 10 out of 10 people die. Can't mess with that statistic, no matter how you deal with the numbers. 10 out of 10 people die. But there is a second death that some will experience as well. I want you to go to Revelation real quick. Revelation verse chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And I will read verses 11 through the end. 15. John writes this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, we do so much today to postpone the first death. We eat right, we exercise, we get regular checkups, we take medication, we go through various treatments, and sadly, Jesus says, we will even be tempted to be quiet about our faith in Christ Jesus in order to delay the inevitable, delay first death. But the scripture, friends, is very clear that the first death is not the one you need to avoid. It's not the one you can avoid. It's the second death that you need to avoid. Eternal separation from God. Jesus says, if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, do not fear them. All they can do is kill you. And in this context, It makes sense. All they can do is hurt your body. Rather, he says, rather, here's whom you ought to fear. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him who has the authority to destroy you. One group kills the body. The other one destroys your soul. This is not a popular message today. Many Many people avoid that conversation about hell. But the truth is we must preach about the reality of hell and how you can flee to Christ to receive salvation and forgiveness of your sins. Friends, your soul matters. The souls of those outside these walls matter today. And in fact, your soul matters more than your body. Dying without faith in Christ damns your soul and your body forever all the dead according to john 15 will be raised 
believers and unbelievers, they will be raised, but some will enjoy eternity with the Lord while others away from Christ. All the enemies of the gospel, friends, will be destroyed. All those who deny Christ will be destroyed. So fear God. God is worthy of our reverence and holy fear. And if the soul matters more, then don't be afraid of men who have no authority over people's souls. In this life, it might seem that those who kill believers, they get away with it. Right? We oftentimes think, where is God's justice? Why are Christians persecuted and martyred? And it seems like, man, they, another one got away. But this verse here teaches that God will raise all the enemies of the gospel and subject them under his feet. If you don't embrace the mercy of Christ and flee for pardon to him and him alone, then scripture is clear, you will receive the wages of sin. G.K. Chesterton, he said this, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. I want you to see here that we're not called to fear hell. That's not what he says, be be afraid of hell. No, he says, fear him, rather fear him, fear God. And because of him, we look differently at the world. We look at the people who are perishing differently, where we should be like Paul was pleading and and begging people to come to know the Lord. The fear of God should drive us to boldly proclaim the message of Christ. And even if the body is destroyed through persecution in the process, it is not wasted. Is losing your body a terrible thing? Yes. And and he's not trying to diminish the suffering. That's not what, what, what he's doing, what Jesus is doing here. What he's trying to do is point you to a greater value. What do you value more? Is this bad? Absolutely. But what is worse? I can't even imagine what it's like to lose your body and to die for Jesus. But it's not the worst thing, friends. He says that we we need to believe this. The worst thing is hell. So value soul over body and therefore preach Christ's forgiveness. If Christ is your ultimate value, then your ultimate fear is dying without Christ or seeing someone else die without repenting. That's your ultimate fear. Fear him. So you live for Christ by prioritizing soul over body, but then he continues on and he says, prioritize God's care over your present experience. I mean, all this talk about persecution and death and hell, right? It could create so much anxiety, but Jesus being the good Lord and the good shepherd who knows our hearts He continues to encourage his disciples and he says, don't think for a single moment that God doesn't care for you, friend. That God will leave you to your own resources. Don't, don't. I am simply calling you to adjust your value system, but in light of this, don't think that God doesn't care. And then he illustrates his point with two pictures. 
sparrows and, and hair, of all the things. He says, sparrows, right? In verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent. Sparrows were very lowly, cheap creatures. They were considered poor men's food. If you couldn't afford a nice steak, you would get a couple of sparrows for a cent, and you would enjoy that. And it's interesting because in Luke chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And here Jesus says, two sparrows are sold for one. Evidently, if you bought them in quality, you get one thrown in. It's like shoes at Payless, right? Buy one, get one 50% off, or I don't know who shops there anymore if you ever did. But the, what, what he is pointing to is that they're insignificant. I'll even throw in, you give me one more cent, I'll give you three for one. But the point here is God cares for all the birds and knows and allows each one to fall according to his own will. Listen, he knows every single death in creation and he's aware and he wills it to happen. We were once sitting in, the, in our living room on our couch and we have these two fairly large windows in our family room. And every once in a while, there would be these birds. I don't know what's wrong with them, but they would literally just fly thinking that there is actually, it's clear and, and it, you could just enter through, but it's actually glass and it would just shatter, fall to the ground. And you're like, oh, birdie. And then every once in a while, they would kind of sit there for a minute or two and then, you know, shake off and off they go. It's like, who? But some don't get up. Some stay there. And you're sitting there and at those moments thinking, you know, God knows the death. God is not so caught up with the big affairs of the world. He knows the death of that one there. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to show him. You are not insignificant to God. He knows you and he cares for you. You are more valuable, verse 31. And then he says, listen, but the very hairs of your head are also numbered. God knows the very hairs on your head. Friends, beloved, this is how intimate God knows every single one of his children. This is how much he loves you. He is, the point here is not that God's busy counting your hair. He knows. The point is to illustrate that he's very attentive to every detail of our life. How many of you would, would confess to deeply love your children? Right? How many of you know the numbers of hair on their head? Right, this is, we don't even know all the details, and we're not so involved in the lives and affairs of those that we claim to love. And God says, I got you. I know exactly what's going on. Friend, you who is suffering today, if you're going through various trials today, the point here is that you are not insignificant to God. 
He knows, he knows your situation. And in his providence, your trials and your persecutions, they do not undermine his care. Trust him. Don't think that God has forgotten, that he doesn't care about your present experience. And in those moments when you're tempted to doubt God's love and care, you need to go back to these passages to fight this lack of faith with biblical truth. Truth about birds, believe it or not. Truth about sparrows. Romans 8 says, nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, even if God would allow your body to fail, and that, I think that's the point that he's making, birds die. Sparrows, they fall to the ground. So you may end up like a sparrow. But even if he allows your body to fail, you are completely and totally secure in God. So prioritize his care for you over your present experience and doubts. Don't fear opposition. Fear God and march march forward. I think that we need to take to heart here as we come to our final point. And it is this, that, that this life here, this life that we're enjoying right now, is so short. Young folks here who are in this room, life is way too short, but eternity is long. Right? This life passes and you're thinking, man, I've only lived 17 years of my life. I still got, you know, another 60 years. Got a long time. No, you don't. That's what he's saying here. Value that which is unseen. Like Moses, right? Moses, we read in Hebrews, because he saw the unseen one. Take this to heart. Life is short, but eternity is very long. You need to prioritize the work of Christ and his mission. Because people's souls are at stake. The key factor then to losing the fear of men is to live for Christ by following his example, by prioritizing his values. And finally, number three, live for Christ by confessing him before men. Finally, he says, therefore, if anyone confesses me before men, I will also confess him. If he denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Everyone, whoever, the focus is now broad. It addresses every single person. Everyone who confesses. What does it mean to confess the Lord? It means to pledge allegiance to Christ publicly. It means to side with Christ. It means if, if a group of people is called forward and you're given orders, if you're with Christ, go here. If you're against Christ, go there. Jesus says that you need to go there publicly. Side with Christ because you're not ashamed of your Lord, because you're not ashamed of your master, because you're in his house, going back to the beginning, you're following Christ, therefore you need to be with him, publicly demonstrate here. Here, Here's the situation that's presented, right? There would be a moment when someone is called to recant their Christian faith. You might be told, deny Jesus and you will Live. Remember, we're still dealing with persecution. We're still dealing with them going out to the mission and they will stand before governors and kings to give an account. 
And today, this very situation is being played out around the world everywhere. By common grace, friends, we don't face this here yet. But this is not an outdated notion, like it never happens everywhere. It happens today. And friends, it will happen here. But the point that Jesus teaches is your allegiance to me and my mission is more more important than anything you have currently going on in your life. And it is worth dying for. It is worth suffering for. Those who will confess Christ before man, Jesus will confess them before the Father. This here refers to the final judgment when all is said and done. Those who lived in denial of Christ must not presume that on the last day they will have an advocate before the Father who will go to bat for them. Don't presume that. If you deny Christ here now, don't presume on the last day. Church, as far as I can tell, right, no one's holding a gun to your head. No one's asking you to deny Christ. No one's asked you last week, last month, last year. Yet how many of us will confess that that we were in situations before when we should have said something about the Lord and we didn't? When God gave us an opportunity, maybe an opportunity that we really prayed for, it's like, let me speak, let me say something about the Lord. And we've wasted it because we were afraid and because we were unprepared. And so you're reading verse 33, and you're becoming anxious. Wow. Right? What does it mean? I denied him. I didn't speak about him. I acted in a cowardly manner as if Christ didn't matter. Well, I want to encourage you Christians here this morning. There are two kinds of denials in Scripture. If you look at the New Testament, there were two men who denied Christ. Judas denied Christ and Peter denied Christ. Judas perished, but Peter was restored. So what, what text, what, or what this text speaks about here is this general disposition, I believe, of one's life. And the general disposition of one's life is either the confession of Christ before men or the denial of him before men. Will we fail? We already have. It's not a question of if. What do we do with it? Well, like Peter who denied Christ three times, Jesus restores him back and he says, you go and now shepherd. Repent. And move on. Those who belong to Christ, even though they may stumble, they will get up and confess Christ. Christ, friends, will never disown his own. You who love Christ, you who are called to be part of his family, you don't have to doubt that on that last day, he will deny you. He won't. He will never disown you. He accepted you. God accepted you in the beloved. But when you deny him and there are opportunities to preach Christ and and when we don't, these are real. Repent, get up, pray for strength and own your savior. There's a story of Thomas Cranmer in 1500s who lived during the Reformation. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
And at one time, he was put in prison because of his declaration that Jesus alone is the head of the church. At that point, if you said that publicly, you would be locked up because they considered Pope the head of the church. And while in prison, he was given a statement, a sort of drafted statement of his recantation, basically. I deny that Jesus is the head of the church. And all he had to do was sign it and be freed. And so after many months of, of just agony and seeing his friends, he was put in prison where through his window he could see the stake at which they burned Christians who wouldn't deny. And he's looking at that and he's battling here inside himself and he took the pen and he signed on it and he denied Christ. And there was a date that was said before him where he would be presented before the congregation, where he would publicly declare his denial of Christ. And as he was preparing for it, he, he was becoming more and more, felt more guilty. His conscience began to smite him. And these very words of 33, Matthew 10, 33, came before him. But he said, I've done it. I've done it already. I've denied Christ. I betrayed my Christian friends who looked up to me for leadership. He had given a cause for the enemies of the gospel to blaspheme Christ, yet his recantation was, was final. So as the day of the public announcement came, he comes up and he said this, this, this statement, I came to the great thing that troubled my conscience more than anything that ever I said or did in my life. And that is the setting abroad of writing contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse. Cranmer recanted his recantation. He recovered. He repented. He was restored. Having fallen, he came back up and Christ brought him back to profess publicly his faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And soon after, when he was also chained to that stake. And when fire was lit, Cranmer said, I am going to burn my hand, which signed that letter first. And he died for Christ. You know, these stories can somehow maybe sometimes instill guilt in us. And like, well, what do we do if we're not facing life-threatening persecutions? Right? What, what should we be doing? Like, there's a good chance when you get home, you'll enjoy life, and tomorrow you'll go to work, and no one's going to knock on your door and take you into prison tomorrow for believing in Christ. I may be wrong, but what do we do? All of us here, we need to think about our values. What are you valuing? What do you spend the most time doing, pursuing, applying your health and wealth towards? Friends, you will fear what you value. If you value Christ and his mission, even the life-threatening persecution, even if it comes, you will live for Christ and his mission at all costs. Follow his example. Prioritize soul over body. Prioritize God's care over your experience. And confess Christ before man. May God give us grace. And may his spirit so work in us that we would value Christ in his mission and so prove to be faithful to him even when it gets bad.
Father, we thank you. These are some sobering words. I pray that we would start and continue to value Christ. So even if there's a day when we will face such physical threat and pressure, we may stay resolute to Christ. We may never deny him. Today, as we go home and as we enter our neighborhoods, as we go to our workplaces, help us to live for Christ and value him above all else. Amen.